2 Samuel. We're going to look at chapter 22 this evening. Last week, we looked at 2 Samuel chapter 21, where David was fulfilling oaths and the Lord... just allowing a strange turn of events with the Gibeonites and the the promise that Joshua had given to them many, many years prior, hundreds of years prior to this event. And, And God being a faithful God, God being a covenant God, he takes covenants very seriously. That means that any oaths or promises that we make are very important, especially when we make them to the Lord. We stand before the altar when we're married and we give vows, and I wonder how often we really think about what we spoke before God and before man, before our family and friends, the things that we vowed to one another. And you know, those are very significant vows, till death do us part, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health. And and those are very lofty promises, and, and, and I think it's probably true that, for the most part, young people, when they're, when they're young and full of energy and they, they just want to race to the altar, I don't know, maybe they do, but I wonder how often they really think about those vows. And the reason I say that is because the divorce rate is so outrageous, even in the church. And people don't take vows very seriously. They don't take promises very seriously. Jesus said, it's better for you not to make a vow. It's better for you not to make a promise than to promise and not follow through with it. But God is a covenant-keeping God. And when he says he's going to do something, he is going to do it. And when he makes a covenant, he follows through on his end of the deal always. He always does. And we are the ones who are the weaker links. And it's no surprise, really, because we are created beings. God is perfect. We know that we are not. But nonetheless, these promises are important. And so we looked at that last week. And so we're going to go through and uh, look at Psalm 20, or excuse me, we are going to go to Psalms, actually, um, at some point here. But in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 22, these two Uh, or this chapter that we're going to look at tonight, in fact, this one as well as uh, chapters 21 through 24, are all referred to as like a historical appendix, meaning these last four chapters were put in seemingly by the the author or the the one who penned this um, 1 and 2 Samuel. It could have been Samuel for some of it. It could have been Gad. It could have been Nathan. Those are usually the top three that we believe, who penned these two books, those three gentlemen. But for some reason, put those last four chapters here at the end as sort of like an addendum. And they're not really in chronological order. And we'll we'll see again tonight, as we looked at last week, chapter 21 really occurred sometime right around 2 Samuel chapter 9. And so there is... um, We can't get too uh, focused on the chronology of this because David now is approaching the latter end of his life. David had a wonderful reign. He lived 70 years, 70 years, and he reigned 40 of those years. Seven of them in Hebron and 33 in Jerusalem. He had a great life. And David here... In chapter 22, this whole chapter, in fact, I would encourage you, 
it's written, it's basically a psalm. It's basically a song. And if you look at Psalm 18, you might want to write in the margin of your Bible, Psalm 18, because you're going to find that this chapter, 22, is pretty much verbatim Psalm 18. I actually followed through on, bo- on both sides, and, and they are almost, I- they're nearly, they're identical. And so, and due to the introduction of Psalm 18, it would seem to place this psalm somewhere in the beginning of David's reign. So again, not chronological as we have seen. But what is the intro? What does it say in Psalm 18? If you have your Bible, you can certainly go there, but I'm going to read to you what it says in the very introduction that David, or the, the author, uh, the Psalm of David, he wrote this. And he wrote this. It says, A Psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Now, when was the day that the Lord delivered him from all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul? Well, it was right around chapter 7, chapter 6, chapter 7 of 2 Samuel. Finally hearing about um, Saul's death and, and, and David now coming into the kingdom. And so again, we're, we're finding this uh, passage is really uh, during a time rate, uh, during the beginning of his reign. And if you think about that, think about what David went through prior to coming into the kingdom. Remember those many years of him being on the run from Saul, running in caves in Engedi and in Adullam's cave, and, and running around in the forests of Heth and uh, all the different forests and the places where David could find a rock to, to hide under, him and his 400-plus men that were with him. And so it's at this time when David has already been running and he finally is taking an exhale from all of the running and finally just settling in to his kingdom. Have you ever had days like that or maybe weeks or maybe even a month or a season in your life where everything is going at breakneck speed and for some reason everything is just filling your calendar to the hilt and you're like, how did this happen? It happens to us, <laughs> my wife and I, and, and the calendar is just stacked, and you've got so many things going on, and you, it just kind of caught you off guard. But then you finally get through it all, and you're like, <sighs> you just want to take a break. That's where David is at in this psalm. In fact, you'll know, notice that it says, uh, praise for God's deliverance. Praise for God's deliverance. In other words, praise for what God has already done which I think is really important for us to do. There are a lot of things that God has done in our life, and I would encourage you to take time to give him thanks and praise. Take time to give him thanks and praise for what he has already done, and then, learn, and then let's grow in that and, and, and even praise him for things that he hasn't even done yet. And you know what, to be honest with you, to praise him even if he does nothing else in our life, to be praise him just because of who he is. Let yourself be carried away with that. And I think the more we mature in our worship, our worship won't be dependent upon things that he's already done for us or even things that we're hoping and knowing that he's going to do in the future, not even things that he's doing in the present, but just God because of who you are. I am going to praise you for just who you are. And I tell you, when we get to that place, that is a, that is a maturing Christian. And don't you want to be a mature Christian? 
I want to be a mature Christian. I don't want to be continuing to suck on the bottle and taking mother's milk. There's nothing wrong with that when you're a young believer, but when you've known the Lord for several years, it's time to put away the milk and start eating the meat and the solid food. And that means really growing and really putting your faith, uh, putting feet on your faith and, 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 and everything you read, applying it to you, not just to somebody else, because we tend to do that. Oh, this will be a great verse for so-and-so. I'm going to text him right now. You know, God, you know, you know hates the froward. Can you imagine sending that to a friend, texting them, God hates the froward. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. God loves you. You know, but this passage, as we read it, it is prophetic. Meaning that David, these things really happened to David. They were his own words, but as is so often with a prophet, he's speaking of events that have occurred to him, but he's also speaking of things that are yet in the future. And David was not only a king, but he was a prophet as well. He was a prophet. We know that in Psalm 22. We know that in Psalm 2. We know that other Psalms, Psalm 61, Psalm 110, there are many of his Psalms that were prophetic in nature. Psalm 23 and 24 and 25 or Psalm 22, 23, and 24, excuse me. Those are all prophetic of things to come. And this one is no different. And so let's get into it. Notice what it says in verse 1. It says, Then David spoke to the Lord, spoke to Yahweh. Whenever you see Lord in all caps, that is a, uh, uh, you should understand that, that means Yahweh. It means Jehovah. That's what Yahweh is. Yehovah, Yeshua, or, or I'm sorry, uh, Yehovah. Jehovah, that's God the Father, Yahweh. So David spoke to the Lord, Yahweh, the words of this song on the day when the Lord had delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So we know uh, where that time frame fits in. So that's where this psalm is placed. But notice what he said in verse 2. He said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. I would encourage you to underline these words that I'm going to tell you. Underline rock and underline fortress. And then in verse 3, underline the God of my strength, my shield, and the horn of my salvation. Underline horn and shield, and and then in stronghold, and my refuge, and my Savior. Notice what all these attributes that David is giving to Yahweh, to God the Father, worshiping him. He says, you are my rock. You're the one who is solid. You're the one who has the greatest foundation. And Lord, I'm on you. I am, I, I'm in you. And so therefore, I, my foundation is sure. Nobody can knock me off of that foundation. There's no greater foundation than that foundation which has already been laid. Jesus Christ, and you're my fortress. You're someone I can run to. And I can run into it and I can be safe. And you're my God of my strength in whom I will trust. I can trust him because he's always looking out for you and I. There's never a moment when God is taking a vacation. There's never a moment where he's not concerned about your well-being. He knows exactly what you're going through. He knows what you're going to go through. He's going to give you grace and prepare you for things that you can't even comprehend yet. And that's the God that we serve, because he is perfect. He is almighty God. He's not some idol in a temple somewhere. 
He is the one who spoke all things. And let your heart be raptured with that thought. He's the one who created all things. The very chair you're seated on, the material from that chair he made. And then man came along and made it and synthesized it and molded it and put foam in it and did all kinds of stuff and voila, out popped a chair. All these things God has made. And he made you and I for a purpose. I hope you're enjoying that purpose because he loves you and he's got a great and wonderful plan for your life. Find out what it is. Just continue to pray and do the simple things. Believe me, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out the will of God. All you've got to do is have a right heart and a heart that's ready and willing to serve to do anything. And you know, when, God, when you're in motion, God can steer you everywhere, anywhere he wants you to. He opens up doors. He closes doors. But you're moving, and he can do that. But when somebody says, well, I'm just going to sit on my hill in, uh, you know, in Ireland, and I'm going to sit in my really fine house where the sunset comes up every morning with my coffee. I'm just going to do that for the rest of my life. You can, but your growth is going to be stunted. God can't use a person who's not moving and doing things. Now, prayerfully ask, but you know what? Sometimes just do it. If the Lord puts something on your heart, just do it. But he's the creator. He's my stronghold. He's my refuge. I'm safe when I run into him. What is that? Uh, the, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it, and they are safe. They are safe, and he's also our Savior, the one who saves us. And it reminds me of Psalm 91. I love what that says. It's one of my favorite psalms, and you know it, I'm sure. But it says, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. And I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress. My God in him I will trust. There again is David again, boasting about his God. And you know what? I think the world needs to see us boasting a lot more about him. The world needs to see us not complaining about what's on Twitter, not complaining about what's happening in the news, although we do that. I do that. I'm guilty. But the, Lord, you know, the world doesn't need to hear us complaining and, and, and putting people down. No, the Lord needs to see the church upholding Christ, speaking of him, and loving people. We really need to be doing that. Notice all these descriptors that David ascribes to the Lord, and the horn is literally strength. When you think of a horn, you think of a rhinoceros, you know, and you see that big horn on the front. Let me tell you, if he's coming after you, even, even, uh, even my brother over here, he's going to run from that rhinoceros although he's going to size you up a little bit there, but uh, I, don't th- I, think, I think you're going to take off because I know I would because they're huge and they got that horn and they can take care of business. But that, it literally means strength. It's strength. And David had experienced many times the Lord's saving grace in protecting him and those who were with him. Even when the Amalekites came against him, do you remember that time when David was in uh, cahoots with the Philistines and the Philistine king uh, gave him a city in the south of Israel called Ziklag. And he went there, and when David went there, after um, the king of the Philistines finally said, David, you can't, you can't go out with us anymore. The other lords of the Philistines, they don't trust you. I trust you implicitly, but those guys don't. And they were good not to trust David because David wasn't really in his right mind at that time. But David goes back to Ziklag after he's kicked out of the Philistine camp 
And he goes down there and finds that his, all the families and his wives and the wives of all the men and the, and the families of all the people who were with him, all the men, they were taken captive by the Amalekites. David knew a thing or two about trusting in the Lord. He knew a thing or two about God's saving grace and protecting him. And he had more reason than most to be able to ascribe the Lord or to the Lord these titles. But notice what it says in verse 4. He says, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. Jesus is worthy to be praised. That's why we start off our times in worship. We, 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 we ascribe praise to him. We exalt him. We, we, we speak of him and to him. It's about him. The, 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 our time of worship is not about us. Even though it's exciting to sing and to, to play an instrument, folks, do you understand it's not about us at all? We may enjoy singing, but it's not about us. It's about him. Who are we worshiping? Are we worshiping him or are we, are we just, is it like a feel-good thing? And, and it's okay if it feels good. I love to sing and I love to play the guitar. I love to play the piano, but it's not about me. It's about him. But David says, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. Notice the, the order here. Because he, because he calls upon the Lord, he had every confidence that the Lord would also come against his enemies. How many enemies do you have? Do you know that God comes against your enemies? He comes against them when you're not even aware that he's already taken care of business and you're completely clueless that he's even done something. And I love that about the Lord because he takes care of a lot more than we give, credit, give him credit for. But this word call, it literally means to call or cry unto, to summon. And, and what is that but prayer? When I call upon the Lord, I'm really inquiring of him. Do you remember? Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 5. Verse 17. 2 Samuel chapter 5. Same book, just go back a number of chapters. 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 17. David, he says, I will call upon the Lord, and you will hear me, Lord. I will call upon you, for you're worthy to be praised, and so shall I be saved. So shall I be saved from my enemies. Look at verse 17. And I love this about David. This is when he was coming around from his... his uh, fog that was in his head. It says, Now when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David, and David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. And the Philistines also went and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. And notice, underline verse 19, the beginning of it anyway. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up? And here's his, here's his call to the Lord. This battle is, is coming and so he's like, I'm going to call unto the Lord. He says, David inquired of the Lord, saying, shall I go up against the Philistines? Notice he didn't presume anything. David was a great warrior. By this time, he was in his prime. He was in his prime. He was a young man, and he had it all happening, man. He was in the prime of his life. And notice David didn't, he called upon the Lord. He didn't presume to do anything. 
And I love that about him. And that's a good, really good lesson for us. But it gets even better, notice. And he says, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand, Lord? And the Lord said to David, go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hand. And so David went to Baal Perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breakthrough of water. And therefore he called the name of that place Baal Perazim. And they left their images there, their idols, in other words, and David and his men carried them away. And then the Philistines, notice, went up once again, and they deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. Underline this. Therefore, David inquired of the Lord. And notice, <coughs> excuse me, notice what he said. And he said, and, and the Lord said to him, you shall not go up. Circle around behind them and come upon them in front of the mulberry trees. And it shall be when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees, then you shall advance quickly. For when then the Lord will go out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. And David did so as the Lord commanded him. And he drove back the Philistines from Geba as far as to Gezer. Notice that he inquired again. Think of it. It happens in the Valley of Rephim. They, they, they get in their battle array. David inquires of the Lord. The Lord says, I'll give them into your hand. Just follow through, David. So they do, and they get great victory. The next day, it happens again. And most people would say, all right, Philistine War 2.0. Let's get it on, right? We'll just go and we'll do the same thing. But notice David, he doesn't presume. He, He calls upon the Lord. He inquires of the Lord, and he says, Lord, shall I go up again? And he says, nope. Think of what would happen if David in his bravado and his experience as a warrior what would have happened if he would have just said okay guys we did this yesterday let's just go forward again same pattern play break you know and everybody it's like a it's like a football play you know and they go down there and they would have got walloped for sure because the philistines maybe they had something going on that david and his men didn't know but god knows the hearts of all men He can overhear what they're thinking, what they're doing. He knows their battle plan already, and he can speak to David and say, David, I want you to do something different. I don't want you to do the same thing. And wouldn't you know it? David listens. And that's a really good thing for us to do, to never presume to inquire of the Lord, even when it's our strong suit, especially when it's our strong suit. Done this many times before. I know how to do this. I've done it millions of times I don't need to inquire of the Lord anymore. I got this down. This is a piece of cake. Pride goes before a fall and a haughty spirit before destruction. It happens so often. You know, I'm learning that to pray a lot. To pray when you're in the car. I pray on the way way here. I pray when I'm on my way back home. I pray in the, you know, whenever I can, whenever I'm, I'm always talking to the Lord. See, God even saw to it that David's own son, Absalom, that he wouldn't even be victorious over him because David would call upon the Lord and what? He would trust in him. Like the song we sang tonight, I will trust in you. We really need to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I encourage you to trust in him more than you do? Trust in him especially when things are going difficult and you don't understand what's going on. Those are the times to really trust him. And trust him when things are going your way. And there's nothing wrong with having a good day and everything going well. I, I, I love those days, to be honest with you. And the Lord allows them. 
But those days when I'm, I'm out of sorts and everything seems to be against me, I need to be prayerful. But I need to be praying when the days are going well because to be prayed up for when those things happen, I'm ready for them. You know what I'm saying? So notice, verse 5, it says, Now when the waves of death surrounded me, David says, the floods of ungodliness made me afraid, and the sorrows of Sheol, or the grave, they uh, surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple, and my cry entered his ears. And you know what? Put an asterisk next to that verse and, and, and think about this verse because I treasure this verse because it speaks of desperation, doesn't it? In my distress, I called upon the Lord. Can I tell you that every time that I have called upon the Lord and have, have really poured out my heart, sometimes even in tears, when I've really been in distress, when I've really been at my end and I am just frazzled, I'm frustrated, I'm even angry, and I'm just going to the Lord and I'm shaking and I'm crying and I'm hurting and I'm desperate. He has never, ever left me. And he will never leave you either. When you're going through it and you're, you're hitting, the, hitting the wall and you're hitting the wall and hitting the wall, drop to your knees and just pray to God and say, God, help me. I don't understand anything. I am just torn apart. I don't even know what my name is. I just want to check out of this rock. I want to go home. Have you had moments like that where you're just like, I'm, I'm, I'm fed up? And I think the older we get, the more we want to jump off this rock quicker. Because you've seen it, you've been through it, you're like, all right, I've had enough of it. I've seen it. I don't want to go through this again. But, but the Lord always responds to desperation. And I love this, that your prayers, when you call out to the Lord, your prayers are, are stored in heaven. In Revelation chapter 5, what does it say? 5 verse 8 says, When he had taken the scroll, the, the, Jesus, the four living creatures, the Lamb of God taking the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Can you imagine that? The prayers of the saints. Every prayer that you've prayed, God keeps an escrow. He holds them. And he's one day going to offer them up. And, and, and he's answering them. He's answering them right now. But one day, all those prayers that you've been praying for are going to be fulfilled. And he is going to put those on the altar. It even tells us in Revelation 18, during the seventh trumpet seal, it says this. It says, then another angel having, and this is uh, Revelation 8, verse 3, another angel having a golden censer came and stood at the altar, and he was given much incense. And again, this scene is in heaven, remember, that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And this is in glory. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. It's so wonderful to think that God holds our prayers so dear to him. Because we've put trust in him. And we've prayed to him in earnest. Excuse me. Verses 8 through 17 as we look at this section, it's really reminiscent of when God came down 
from Mount Sinai. Remember when the children of Israel had come out of Egypt. They were three months in the desert, three months on their journey. It shouldn't have taken them three months to get from where they were going to where they were going. But they, they, because of their disobedience, there they are. But three months, God was going to meet them on Mount Sinai and give them the Ten Commandments and other commandments. And it says, notice what it says. I love the, the poetic nature of this section because it speaks of God. Even though he can't be described, it's speaking of him and using uh, poetic phrases And you'll see what I mean. The earth shook, notice, and trembled. And the foundations of heaven quaked and were shaken because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth and coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down with darkness under his feet. And he rode upon a cherub and flew and he was seen upon the wings of the wind. Evidently the The pagan Canaanite god Baal was known to his worshipers as the rider of the clouds. Baal was known as the rider on the clouds. And here God is ascribing that characteristic or that that way of motion to himself. And I love that. He's just going, I don't care what they think. Uh, This is is who I am. And (laughs) I love that. God is the one who has command over nature and the universe. And David certainly knew this with his flirtations with the Philistines. He knew about this. But notice in verse 12, it goes on. He made darkness canopies around him, dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. From the brightness that was before him, coals of fire were kindled. And the Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. And he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning bolts, and he vanquished them. And then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were uncovered. At the rebuke of the Lord and the blast of the breath of his nostrils, he sent from above, and he took me, and he drew me out of many waters. When I read something like that, the imagery of those words just gives you just an awesome understanding of who God is. And yet, I believe it's even still pale in comparison, but it's, it's, it's framed in such a way where we can understand how powerful God really is. And that's really important. Because as you stand before your enemies and your mountains, whatever that mountain is that's in front of you, you have to know the one who created that mountain and who allowed that mountain to be there and to trust in him. And to trust in him for deliverance. David so many times had been so close to death. He even told Jonathan, he said, Jonathan, your father is relentless. He's coming after me. And I am but this close to death. Between me and death is a breath. And there was even one time when Saul was chasing him around one of the mountains there in Israel, and they're chasing him around the mountain, and and the Lord didn't allow David to be caught. And he was closer then of being caught than any other time. But when I hear language like this, it reminds me, it encourages me. And and then yet to think that even in this poetic display of God's power, that it's still compared to who he really is. That's what I like to dwell on. In fact, you can't think of a more lofty thought. You can't think of a, a thought so great that God wouldn't ascribe or has already been there. Do you understand what I'm saying? There's no thought that I can imagine in my heart that could be so great 
that will be greater than him. It's just not possible. And see, that's who he is. He's so much greater than anything I can even conjure up in my heart of hearts. And I love that about him. And David was so, he trusted the Lord. And it just speaks of his omnipotence and the mystery of God's character. Do you ever notice that when it talks about thick clouds and dark clouds and and all of that, and you think, wow, that's kind of interesting because wouldn't it be like bright clouds and white clouds? And, you know, we have this uh, heavenly thought about the, the, the glory of God, and yet he, he, he's veiled because he's so awesome. Because if he revealed himself, and in fact, that's why one of the things I believe we have to be raptured, we have to be changed in a new body because if we were to stand, if God was to appear, God the Father or even Jesus was to appear in this room right now in all of his glory, there would be nothing left of this place. <laughs> there would be nothing left. We wouldn't make it, folks. I, I really don't, unless his grace you know, preserved us. But at the very least, we would have our face on the ground and, and wishing for death <laughs> because of the dread of his holiness. I, there, that's something about that I, just, I love to think about. Because in this body, I'm full of sin. Even though I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, I know that I am st- I've still got so much stuff in my heart. Maybe you can relate. And to see God in all of his beauty and his love and his glory, unbridled. Oh my goodness. He dwells in unapproachable light, the Bible tells us. And for me right now to stand in that presence, I would be a puddle. I would be a puddle. My breath would be taken away from me. You know, when we look at this, if, uh, you don't have to turn there, but maybe write in your margin of your Bible, Exodus 19, because we see similar language when God gave them, uh, the children of Israel, the covenant from Mount Sinai. It says in verse 16 of Exodus 19, it says, Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, and the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so that all the people who were in the camp, they trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. And now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And then when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. And then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. You know, and when you compare that with what we just read here, which is Psalm 18 as well, it, it just it, it blows you away to think of God, of how awesome he is. Be encouraged by how awesome he is. There's no one like him. There's no one like him. There's no one like him. And when we even see the forces of nature at work, you know, as I see the, you know, when you think of, um, you know, uh, acts of nature, you know, remember that God made nature. It ought to bring us to our knees in worship and, and a holy dread. When you see just by nature what can happen with Mount St. Helens in 1983, I think it was, or 1980, the whole top of that thing blew off and created a cavern. It just... It just leveled everything, and it was such a geological mind-blower. 
And what about the tsunami of 2011? Seeing the might of all that. Just cities washed away completely. The hurricanes and the tornadoes, the volcanoes, the rain and the flooding. And you see all these acts of nature and you see the power of it. And you're just like, oh my goodness, remember that God is the author. He's not the author of the tornadoes. And no, I believe that's somebody else. But I, I, he created all those things and all that power. He's like, oh, it's no big deal. I can move anything I want, God says. But notice verse 18 back in our text. It says, He delivered me from my strong enemy. This was true of David. David could say this. He removed me. He delivered me from my strong enemy. He delivered me from Saul. He delivered me from the Philistines. He delivered me from my own son, David would say, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me, especially as David got older and his son was coming after him, and he had to leave Jerusalem, and he's going up the Mount of Olives, and Shimei's throwing rocks and calling him names and and, and everything, and blaspheming David, and David is just, at that point, an older man. He just doesn't have it with, he doesn't have it together like he used to. And he's just like, oh my goodness, they were too strong for me. They were too strong for me. And then they confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. And the Lord hasn't changed. He's going to be your support too. Many of you have gone through really difficult things lately. You've gone through deep waters and God has been your support. And he'll never leave you. He'll never leave you. He will always respond to desperation. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. Well, so much for the unbiblical phrase, God helps those who help themselves. It's an unbiblical phrase. God helps those who help themselves. No, there's, it's nowhere to be found in the Bible. In fact, God helps those who can't or are unable to help themselves. He is the God of the underdog. He's the God of the wounded. He's the God of the weak. And he also, verse 20, he brought me into a broad place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He has recompensed or awarded me. And verse 21 through 25, as we're going to look at, not only speak of David's experience, but it also speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ. And David was very much aware that he was a sinner. So when he speaks of the cleanness of his hands and these kinds of things, you have to understand that he's speaking, uh, he's speaking through um, a different lens, if you will. He knows that he's a sinner, but he also knows that there's blessings for obedience. He also knows that there's blessings for obedience and turning away from sin. He experienced it because the Bible tells us that all have fallen sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Psalm 14 tells us that there is, the fool says in his heart that there is no God, that there is no God, that they are all corrupt, God says. They've all done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. But here's the thing, they've all turned aside. They have altogether become corrupt. There is no one, not one is good. No, not one. That's what the Bible says. And according to the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me. There are blessings, again, for obedience. I would encourage you to read Deuteronomy 28. Put a little note in the margin of your Bible. Deuteronomy 28. Read the whole thing. It talks about blessings and cursings. If you do these things, God will bless you. But if you don't do these things, you're going to be cursed. <laughs> your life's going to be a wreck. 
And when you look around at people's life, you can say, yep, people's lives are a wreck because they've been, they've been totally disobedient to God. Instead of embracing life, they want to destroy life. Instead of telling the truth, they'd rather tell a lie. It's a bitter pill for them at the end. It catches up pretty quickly, and it grows like a wave. It's always good to be honest and upfront with the Lord and with everybody that you have to deal with. But notice, um, and he, he will not only reward you, but he will also reward those who are currently doing evil. Hosea tells us that they sow to the wind, and they're going to reap, they're going to reap the whirlwind. Proverbs 22, verse 8 tells us, He who sows iniquity will reap sorrow. Isn't that true? Have you experienced it yourself? Have you reaped iniquity when you were younger? I did. I reaped. I reaped. I reaped. I don't know what the right phrase is there. Somebody, can somebody conjugate that verb? I reaped. I reaped that many times. Yes. Today I reap many times. Never mind. Anyway. But the idea is <laughs> that whatever we sow, we will reap. Do not be deceived, Galatians tells us. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Psalm 37, verse 9 tells us, For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. And then it goes down at the end, and it says in verse 12 of Psalm 37, The wicked plots against the just and gnashes at him with his teeth. And notice in verse 13 it says, The Lord laughs at him, for he sees that his day is coming. The Lord laughs at the wicked. For though, no, no, don't misunderstand this. He loves the people, but if they are continuing in their wickedness, God is going, he's laughing at them. What are you doing? It's folly to go against the Lord. It's folly to go against him. And he knows that their day is coming. If they don't turn from their sin, their day will come, and it will not be a good day. Vengeance is mine and recompense. The Lord will judge his people. When he sees that their power is gone and there is no one remaining, bond or free, that's the Lord. Vengeance is his. It belongs to him. So back in verse 22 in, in, the, in our verse tonight, he goes on, David, he says, For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his judgments were before me, and as for his statutes, I did not... De- I did not depart from them. That's a really good way to think of it. It's a good heart to have. I don't want to depart from your ways, Lord. I want to learn. I want to grow. I want to live. And I was also blameless before him, David says, and I kept myself from my iniquity. Now, and therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of, of, uh, in his eyes. And you know, this may seem a little difficult to hear David speaking, but you have to understand when he wrote this psalm. If we believe it was in the beginning of his reign, it was before his issue with Bathsheba and, and his issue with killing uh, her husband. And so David, fresh from uh, getting into the kingdom and God making him these great promises, he was on cloud nine. And it would be very easy for him to say this, but let me suggest to you that even if David had committed, and he did, even after the thing with Bathsheba and killing Uriah and all of that, David could still say the same thing. And why? Because he repented. He confessed. He repented. And God forgave him. He is justified, just as if he didn't do it. 
That is amazing grace, folks. When you can have such a relationship with God. See, it's easy when you're doing well and to, and to claim all these wonderful, lofty things about God, but what about after you've really failed and you've confessed and you've, you've turned from that sin? Can you still have that same heart of, of boasting in God like you did before? I think you can. And I think it's something that, I think it's going to take growth in me and perhaps you to be able to really blow it and then at the same time go, God, I am, I'm blameless in your sight. After, of course, you have confessed it as sin and that you've asked God to forgive you. And what's the promise? He tells us, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a promise. And when we do that, he chooses to forget it. It's, he casts, he says, for all, you have cast all my sins behind your back, it says in Isaiah. And I will not remember your sins, God says in Isaiah 43, 25. In Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your transgressions from us. So far as he removed our transgressions from us. In Micah 7.19, he will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all of our sins in the depths of the sea. God has a perfect memory. He can forget your sin, and it's as if it never happened when you put it under the blood of Christ. And then you can walk and say, Lord, only by your grace am I blameless in your sight. And he could say, yes, you are. You are blameless in my sight. Because that's the power of the blood of Christ, you see. That's the power of the blood of Christ. It's important to know that because we and the devil like to beat us over the head by things that we've done wrong and continue to beat us. And we like to beat ourselves too for several days after we've really blown it. It somehow makes us feel better. But you know what? The more we can grapple, grapple the idea of all I need to do, God, is, of course, you mourn over your sin, especially if it's something that you're, you're tired of and you've stepped on, you know, you've done this thing again. Just go before him and confess it and say, Lord, I am so sorry. I come into agreement with you. It is sin. Forgive me, Lord. And give me the gift of repentance to never go back on it again. And I tell you what, when you do that, you can walk away from that as if it had never happened. But your own heart and the devil will never let you forget it so easily. But you can walk away from that and trust what the Scripture says. It's, it takes a, that's a big deal. I think that takes um, a lot of grace, but it's possible. Notice verse 26. With the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. With a blameless man, you will show yourself blameless. With the pure, you will show yourself pure. And with the devious, you will show yourself shrewd. You will save the humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty that you may bring them down. For you are my lamp, O Lord, and the Lord shall enlighten my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop. By my God I can leap over a wall. As for God, his way is perfect, and the word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all those who trust in him. Psalm 84 says, The Lord is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give mercy or grace and glory, and no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man who trusts in you. Be a person who trusts in God and be blessed. Be truly happy. It even goes beyond externals. For who is God except the Lord? And who is our rock except our God? God is my strength and my power. He makes my way perfect. 
He makes my feet like the feet of a deer, and he sets me on high places. You know, uh, there's a particular type of animal in Israel, and they're very well known, and they're very uh, uh, prolific in the area of En Gedi, which is right there on the eastern or western shore of the Dead Sea. In En Gedi, there's the animals called the ibex, and they look like deer, but they've got these two horns that go like go back like this. And it reminds me, as I read this, he makes my feet like the feet of deer and sets me on high places. And i got to be honest with you, i got pictures of these things in Engedi where these things will be up on a cliff and they're standing on the side of a cliff and, and you're wondering, how did they get up there? And they're up there and they're kind of looking around and they're, they're, there's like a little patch of weeds lodged in the, in the side of the cliff there and they're hanging on the side and there's like 100 feet, you know, it's like ridiculous. You know, there's no carabiner, there's no, you know, and they're just chewing up, pulling the stuff out, and they're eating it, and they're looking down, and, you know, and the slobber's going on, and they're just doing their thing, and they walk, and they, you know, they stumble around, and they're walking, and these play, it's crazy, how did they do that? And God says, I can make you do that. <laughs> I want you to walk on my high places. In Christ, you can walk on those high places. Blessed are the feet of the gospel sower. Beautiful. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the gospel of peace. You can ride on high places. You're going to be like that ibex. Love that. Notice in verse 35, he teaches my hands to make war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. And you have also, and as we look at verse 36 through 46, this again was not only true of David, but also of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, a prophetic passage here. It says, You have also given me the shield of your salvation. Your gentleness has made me great. I love that. Your gentleness has made me great. Oh, gentleness is such a wonderful word. May the Lord grow us in that. It's a fruit of the Spirit, isn't it? Love, joy, uh, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Your gentleness has made me great. Lord, have more of that in our life. Notice, you enlarged my path under me so my feet did not slip. Again, I think of that ibex who's precarious, and you're thinking any minute I'm seeing this animal fall several, you know, like 100 feet down into a gorge, and I've never seen one. Those guys are like super glue. I have no idea what they got. It's like Spider-Man, Spidey sense thing happening. I don't know. They just confound all the tourists. Everyone's taking pictures. How did that happen? That's crazy. You enlarged my path under me so my feet did not slip. I have pursued my enemies, destroyed them, and neither did I turn back again until they were all destroyed. Even though this is speaking of David, it's also speaking of Jesus, especially at the end, which we will get to hopefully. Wow, I can't believe the time. And, they, and he says, And I have destroyed them and wounded them so that they could not rise. They have fallen under my feet, for you have armed me with strength for the battle. You have subdued under me those who rose up against me. You have also given me the necks of my enemies so that I destroyed those who hated me. And they looked, but there was none to save them. Even to the Lord they looked, but he would not answer them. I pity the fool. <laughs> Did you know Mr. T? I believe he got saved. Anybody know Mr. T? Remember the A-Team? The show, the A-Team? I pity the fool. Remember that? He's an African-American man. I love that guy. He's a, he's a believer. He's a believer now. The guy's on fire for Christ. Love that. I don't know how I got on that, but uh, um, it's pretty interesting. I pity the man who 
doesn't, who goes against the Lord. You're going to be beat. You're going to be beat. And notice what it says, Then I beat them as fine as the dust of the earth. I trod them like dirt in the streets, and I spread them out. See, God is a God of grace. We know that he is. He's wonderful to those who love him. But to those who are obstinate and unwilling to yield to him, and even to their dying breath, they're shaking their fist at God, and they finally pass on, that person has got the most horrible existence yet coming in their life. For eternity. But that's not God's fault. That's their fault. God wants everyone to come to to a saving faith. He's a God of grace, but he's also a God of war and a God of vengeance. We don't talk about that that much. But in Exodus, it says, The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Look at Psalm 2, and it talks about how God is going to vex them at one, one time in the future When he comes back to the earth and his second coming, he's going to vex them in his sore displeasure. He's going to consume them in an instant, and that's who God is. He's a a Lord that's plenty of love and plenty of grace, but let me tell you, you don't want to be on the business end. You don't want to be on the other end of God. If you haven't received Christ, and, and you know, I'm speaking to all of you here, but I know this message goes out over the radio, and many more people are going to hear it, and somebody out there needs to hear that. They need to hear that. You need to turn from your sin today and stop playing games with God. He loves you. Make no, make, no, make no mistake. He loves you more than you can possibly imagine. His love for you is actually very fierce. But when you stick your finger in his chest and say, I will not have this man rule over me, And if you continue like that and you pass away, there is nothing left but judgment for you. In Daniel's uh, prophecy, it speaks of Jesus coming back to the earth. And it's in Daniel chapter 2, verse 34 and 35. Let me read it to you. And he's speaking of Nebuchadnezzar's dream that he had of this statue. And really this statue, the different layers of this statue, and I won't go into it right now, but each one of them, uh, spoke of the, the different world um, empires that would come on the scene all the way to the very end before Christ would come back. And Daniel, through the Spirit of God, defines each one of those before they happened to Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> Amazing. And, and da- Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar, you watched while a stone, and, and so the statue is, you know, he's, he sees the statue in his dream, and, and Daniel says, you're the head of gold. And then he defines all these other kingdoms. And then finally, at the very end of time, down at the iron, where the iron is mixed in clay and, and the feet are made of clay and, and bronze mixed together, he says, You watched, Nebuchadnezzar, and a stone that was cut without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. And then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold, they were crushed together, became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Who is that rock from heaven? that's going to smite the nations ultimately and come back and put an end to all of the Gentile nations. Who is it? It's Jesus. When he comes back in his second coming, that's exactly what's going to happen. He's going to put an end to Gentile government once and for all for good. Period. Exclamation point. 
In Revelation, you can read it for yourself. Make a note of this and go read it for yourself. Revelation 20, verses 11 through 21. At the end of the great tribulation and at the beginning of the millennial reign of Christ, when, when he comes down, and actually uh, 19, um, 19, verse 11, uh, on through the rest of uh, Revelation 19 and into, into 20. Actually, you know what? I think I, I may have misquoted that. It's actually uh, Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21. Excuse me. But it's at the end. When that rock without hands, this mountain is going to come and he's going to strike the foot of that image, which is going to be the final empire on the earth, which is yet, by the way, future to us, of course, and it's going to be a revived Roman Empire. We may not call it the revived Roman Empire. It's just going to be a government, but it's coming. It's already forming. It's already before us, and it's going to have its fruition. It's coming. It's coming. It's building, and then God, Jesus, when he comes back and he sets foot on the Mount of Olives, he's going to crush it, and it's all going to come tumbling down like the walls of Jericho. Notice verse 44, you have also delivered me from the strivings of my people. You have kept me as the head of the nations. You better believe it. David was not only the head of the nations at that time, and Jesus is going to be the head of the nations when he comes back. A people that I have not known shall serve me. The foreigners submit to me. As soon as they hear, they obey me. The foreigners fade away and come frightened from their hideouts. Yes, they did that during David's reign, but he's also speaking of Jesus because what does it tell us in Zechariah chapter 14? And Zechariah, believe it or not, you know what's crazy? There's more about the millennium in the Old Testament than in the book of Revelation. There is, there's chapters on it. Ezekiel 40 through the end of the book is all about the millennial reign. Zechariah, a lot about the millennial reign. And Isaiah, a lot about the, uh, you know, the millennial reign. What does it give us in, in Revelation? About five verses. <laughs> Zechariah says this. He says, It shall come to pass that everyone who has left, and again, this is speaking of the millennial reign of Christ. When it begins, and it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem, because we know that that's coming before Christ comes back, they shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And it shall be that whatever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. If the family of Egypt that will not come up and enter in, they will have no rain. They shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to the keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all nations that shall not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Yes, a feast of ta- a Jewish feast in the millennial reign of Christ. And it gets even crazier because notice what it says. In that day, holiness to the Lord shall be engraved on the bells of the horses. The pots in the Lord's houses shall also be like the bulls before the altar. And yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. And everyone who sacrifices, what? There's going to be sacrifices in the millennial reign? I thought Jesus was sacrificed once and for all. Yeah, he was. But they're still going to have sacrifices. They're going to be for memorial purposes. It's not going to be because they need to be done. But they're still going to have the feast days to remember. And all those feast days all point back in one way or another to who? To who? 
Jesus, right? All those feasts are all about him. And everyone who sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them. In that day there shall be no longer to be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of the hosts. You can also read Ezekiel 46. And it talks about that time during the millennial reign of Christ and the feasts that are going to happen, the, the lambs that will still be slaughtered on the altar in, a new, or in, the, uh, uh, in the rebuilt temple in, uh, uh, in, in Jerusalem. And Ezekiel talks about the, everything about this new temple that's going to be built when Jesus comes to the earth for a thousand years. He, he gives specific dimensions. It's recorded for us in Ezekiel 40 through 47. You can read it yourself. It's all there. That temple has never been built before because it's yet coming, and it's not the one that the Antichrist is going to be building, the man of sin after the church is removed. It's not that one, but it's the one afterwards. So notice, we'll finally end this psalm. Thank you for your patience. Notice what he says. He ends the psalm, or ends this passage, which is really the psalm of 18. He says, The Lord lives. Blessed be my rock. Let God be exalted, the rock of my salvation. He is the rock of your salvation. He's the most solid thing you've got. And I love that because there's nothing more solid in my life than him. There's nothing in my life that's more solid than him. I can rest in him. Can you, have, you, have you learned to rest in him? Rest in him. Rest in him. Rest in it. And it is God who avenges me, David says, and he subdues the people under me and, and he delivers me from my enemies. And you also lift me up because above those who rise against me. And you have delivered me, God, from the violent man. And therefore I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles and sing praises to your name. He is the tower of salvation to his king and shows mercy to his Messiah. Yes, you heard that right. The word says anointed, but in Hebrew, it's Messiah. And shows mercy to his Messiah, to David and his descendants forevermore. I love that. I love that. Overall, this, this psalm speaks of God's deliverance, of his omnipotence over all of creation. And again, I like to get carried away with that. I like to really think about that. Especially when, if you're the type of person who feels like things are out of control and you look around and things are definitely out of control, where do you go when you are feeling unhinged, when you're watching too much news and it's starting to frazzle you? Where do you go? You go here. You go to the Word of God and it's the foundation that cannot be shaken. You can rest in His foundation. And I don't know about you, but it really does. It renews me. The more I read the, the Word of God, it renews me. And it gives me a great confidence, not in myself, but in him. And I know that the Lord wants us all to have that confidence. Not a confidence in anything we've done, you understand. It's a confidence in how great he is and what he is able to do. And I just trust in him. And Lord, help me to trust you more. I'm always being tested. <laughs> you being tested? And don't be discouraged when, you've, when you're tested and you fail. God is not angry with you. He already knew you were going to fail. In fact, sometimes he allows those things to bring us into an understanding. And then what do we do? We, we crawl up in his lap again and we cry our eyes out. We say, God, forgive me. I thought I was stronger than that. And I really don't have a clue of who I really am. I don't even know. And we certainly need to be crying out to him. 
praying that God would help us in our country and the mess that it's in. Amen? Let's stand and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this psalm and we thank you for the encouragement, Lord, the exhortation that we receive from David through the Spirit of God. And Lord, help us, Lord. Lord, just to remember your greatness. Lord, to be in your word often. Lord, to be trusting you more than we do. Lord, to be reading for ourselves and not reading for others. Lord, to always be seeing how, how does this apply to my life today? How is it going to apply, to apply to my life this week? Lord, help us. Open our eyes. Open our ears. And Lord, protect us in this world that we live in. Lord, protect us from deception. Protect us from the temptations that we all have. Lord, we all have temptations. Protect us, Lord, and help us today. Help us tomorrow. Be glorified in your church, in all of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.